is Veracity Project. And this is our big, big event for the fall. Um, and we're, as a church, we just generally sign up the day before. So we're at that point, mom and dad. So if you could just get them signed up and registered, we've got some plans to, to finish making. It'd be great to know who's coming. Um, this is our big deal for the fall for our students. So um, our big event, big ministry event. It's a great Saturday. Apparently the weather's going to be amazing. It'll be fall, apparently. So um, we're going to have a great time. So make sure you get your kids signed up for that, all right? We'll be in 1 Thessalonians. We'll have it on the screen for you. Um, we're going to walk through this book over the next couple of months here, um, kind of back to our book study um, that we like to do here as we walk through Scripture. Um, as we think about, we, which we've talked a little bit the last couple of weeks even, but as we think about um, our current experience, or maybe as we look at where we're at now and, and where Christianity in America is kind of headed and, and how our culture is changing, and we find ourselves more and more on the outside of culture, which is what's kind of happening right now, that is not um, an unusual thing for Christianity. Matter of fact, that's sort of the testimony of Christianity from the beginning of Christianity, um, that, that Christians have been on the outside of culture. Christianity has been, at, at the least, countercultural, um, And we are kind of finding ourselves here um, in the United States headed back to um, that which has been common again for Christians throughout history and certainly across the planet and the globe uh, even today. Um, we see in Acts, in the book of Acts, in uh, Peter, in the books that he wrote, John, the context of John, how John, the gospel of John, and the, and the three uh, letters of John are written in Thessalonians. We see all of these books uh, written to Christians who are followers of Christ that are living in hostile environments. And so we see that here in Thessalonians, that they're going to be believers and Christians, and they're living their Christianity, their faith out in these hostile environments. Now, the Thessalonian church, uh, the people that are there, they've been thriving. They're not suffering and, and moaning and complaining and writing their congressman and telling him how hard it is to be a Christian, you know. They are suffering well. Uh, for Christianity and their faith is thriving during this time even though they're in this time of suffering um, to the point where Paul I'm not going to show you the map but he's about 400 uh, 350 miles away from Thessalonica where this church is he's in Corinth and uh, he's which is a long way away even today but especially back then um, and communication was harder but he has heard about their faith from 350 miles away and he's encouraged by their faith. He's impressed by their faith um, and how this young church has uh, lived out the principles of Christianity even when, when times are hard. So he's going to talk about three things. Kind of echoes throughout the book, but definitely here in chapter 1. He'll talk about their work of faith, their labor of love, their persistence of hope. Those three words should sound very familiar to you. Faith, hope, and love, um, which we read about in 1 Corinthians also. That kind of serves as his outline uh, of chapter one, those three ideas, faith, hope, and love. And so we'll be talking about those things today in particular as we get into it. So Paul hears about their faith, he's encouraged by their faith, um, and he wants to write a letter to encourage them in their suffering. And while they're suffering, to keep on with the faith, their hope, and their love. Um, so that's why he's writing uh, this book to them, um, that he is thankful for what he sees in them. Um, he's not thankful that they're devotional people. He's not thankful that they're religiously pious people, that they have some kind of spiritual sentiment about them. He is thankful for them because they've lived out their faith in works. 
He is saying to them, if you have true faith, if you have real love, if you've been born of the Spirit, if you have a hope that comes from Jesus Christ, they're going to motivate you to change your life every day. So Paul, one of Paul's big points in this book is not just that you have said you follow Christ, not just that you feel a devotional love for Christ, but that you are actually living out in pain, in suffering, in a hostile environment. You are living those things out daily, and people are seeing your faith, and they're responding to it. They're encouraged by it. So he wants to encourage them with that. Um, so let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, so the three of them are writing together, to the church of the Thessalonians in the God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he's commending them for their faith. He's encouraging them. He's like, I know you're suffering. I know it's hard, and you're living it out. I've heard about your faith, and I want to encourage you in that. So where do their, their works of faith come from? Why are they able to live like that um, in that hostile environment, that culture that doesn't support their faith? How are they able to do that? Well, the first thing he says, he calls them, they're the beloved by God, right? You're our church brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and you are beloved by God. That's the first thing he says. They are the objects of God's love. God has turned his love toward you. And then he's going to talk about later on, we'll get to it in verse 10, he'll talk about God's wrath. Um, but here he's talking about God's love. And I just want to under, help you understand why this is such a big deal and why we should all be encouraged by this. Every person in this room was born an object of God's wrath. We were the objects of God's wrath. In our humanness, we rebelled against him. We sinned against him, right? We have violated the character of God, and we were the objects of God's wrath. And at the same time, we were the objects of God's love. We're the objects of God's wrath, and he has taken his love, and he has pointed that love toward us just as strongly as he's pointed his wrath at us. The wrath of God, of God is ours, but so is God giving his love. Without his love on us, we are going to get his wrath. God's love doesn't, is not a blanket. It covers all sin for all people. God's love is his motivation to reach out with Jesus and to take the wrath that we deserve and to make it possible for us to experience God, to know him, to see his love in our lives every single day. I want you to understand that it's because of Jesus that we can know the love of God. When we're born, we're the objects of God's wrath. We're also the objects of God's love. First Romans chapter 1 says we're ignorant of that. We don't understand that. We don't know. We're blind to that love that God has for us. The only way we can know God's love is because of what Jesus has done. He is our shepherd, which we sang about. He guides us to the celestial waters. He's the great king of glory. He's the giver of mercy in our lives. He's the foundation of our life in God. And it's because of Jesus that we can have those things, and we can also be the object of God's love. And we can know God's love. We're called Christians. We're called Christ followers. We're called disciples, and all of them, those are accurate. 
But man, I just want to, like we looked at in 1 John a couple of weeks ago, I want us to understand that we are beloved by God. We are beloved by God. I want us to be known by that. I am loved by God. That was John's nickname, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I want to be known by that. I want to see myself like that. I am an, I'm the object of God's love. Tozer, a Christian writer, he talks about this, and I agree with him, that the more like Jesus somebody is, the more we look like Christ, the more I experience the love of God. God's purest love is directed toward himself. God loves himself above everything else in the universe, which is appropriate. If God loved anything more than he loved himself, he'd be an idolater, and God can't be an idolater. God's purest love is the love that he directs toward himself. So when I have the image of God in me and the image of Christ in me and I look more and more like Jesus, I receive and experience more of the love of God because God loves himself. And as Jesus is manifested in me, I experience that love more and more. Tozer said this, he said, so the truly Christ-like soul enjoys more of God's love because God sees in him a truer image of himself than in a soul less purified. God loves his son with infinite perfection because Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And as the image of Christ becomes truer in me, I know and experience more of the love of God. So because of Jesus, we receive more and more of the fullness of God's love on us. I'm the object of his wrath, but I'm the object of his love. And because of that love, I can know him and be like him and experience more of his love. Amen? Huge motivation for them. So it's like, wh- how are they able to act like that? Because they're beloved by God. Secondly, they're chosen by God. How do you know that God has chosen you? The answer is this, that you begin to sense a deep desire for God. It begins with that. We're not born with a desire for God. We're born with a desire for ourselves to be in the position of God. And we confuse that for God a lot. We put a lot of other things in God's place, and we can say we're spiritual beings, but we don't, we're not born with a desire for God. One of the ways you know you're chosen by God is you begin to sense deep in your soul, I want God. I want to know God. I want to know who he is. Uh, If he's there, I want to have a relationship with him if that's even possible. You begin to have those kinds of internal conversations with yourself and with God. When you're called by God through the Spirit, it wakens a, a hunger in you to know more about God. So, if you want to be different, if you want to be more than you are now, if you've tried to change and you get frustrated because you can't but you want to change you are being drawn by God because he has chosen you that's how you know so when this the good news the gospel of Jesus came to these people in Thessalonica one of the things that happened to them they began to feel a deep desire to have this Jesus in them who could make such a tremendous change in people's lives they wanted that and they and then so basically what Paul is saying is the only reason you're here the only reason that God is coming to you and, and changing you like this and you want to change and I see that evidence in you is because God has chosen you. So some of you, your mind is spinning because you're actually thinking right now and you're thinking, well, do I choose God? Does God choose me? I'm going to say the answer is yes. Okay? God loves you and he chooses you and I love God and I choose him. God chooses us. And that is one, that knowing that, knowing that it doesn't all rest on my choosing of him, gives me the ability to walk in faith every day. Gives me the assurance that even when I mess up and I'm not a great Christian and I'm not a great dad and I'm not a great husband, God chose me. He chose me, right? Amen? 
and his choices, he's not, he doesn't fluctuate like I do, right? He is steadfast in his choice, so he doesn't ever get rid of me, right? He doesn't change his mind just because I'm a screw-up, amen? So I can act in faith and behave the way he wants me to today, even when I mess up because he chose me. So that's the encouragement that he's giving them. He's like, you were living in faith, and I want to encourage you in that faith. And the two ways that I know that you can do that is because God's loved you and he's chosen you. Look at verse 6. It says, you also have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything more. Paul is praising them in honestly sort of this Captain Obvious kind of way. He's being really obvious about how he's praising them. Doesn't mean that it's, it's not worth anything. It's just like, well, of course. And this is kind of the way Paul is approaching it. He's saying, listen, you're living in faith, I even though you're struggling and you're suffering, you're living like this because God's loved you and he's chosen you. And he's like, I'm convinced that Jesus really is in you because when I look at your faith, you really love people. You have an unshakable faith even though you're suffering. You live in a dark world with daily hope. And I see that in you and that's a mark of faith. So I know that you really are following God because I see these things in you. And he's like, and I know you're doing that because you're imitating us. When we were there with you, we showed you what that looked like. We showed you what it looked like to walk with God, with Christ, not compromising, even though things were hard, and you are now doing that yourself. So I want to tell you guys this. The quickest and surest way to life change is to imitate other people. Moms and dads, who are your children like? Pointing at the other one. They're like this one. They're like you. Why? Because they're imitating you. They, they're imitating what they saw you do. Now, maybe not every stitch and, you know, everything in every detail in life, but the general things in life, they're mimicking you. They're imitating you. It is the time-tested way to affect life change in people's lives is to have them imitate other people. And Paul's like, you are living this way with this faith because you are imitating us. And it is the quickest way and the most powerful way to really instigate life change in other people is to live life with them and then to imitate them. I think uh, one of the things we struggle with, which we're talking about in our church right now, but one of the things that we struggle with in Christianity today is that we have so elevated the idea of, of peers being our family and a value of keeping it real and looking for places where people don't judge us that we have kind of forfeited the opportunity to see a mature person's, person's faith, to sense the distance between my faith and that faith, and then imitate what I see in them. I think we've really robbed ourselves of a lot of the opportunity to see what a mature faith looks like. And we couch it in terms of, I just want to have family, and I want to have people that look like me, and they'll help me grow in my faith. But in reality, I'm just removing myself from places where I feel like, oh, I'm really not that mature. <laughs> my faith really does need to grow up, right? And so I think that's one thing that we can do is find people, be a lot more proactive about finding people that we can imitate in our faith and in our walk with Jesus Christ. So question for each of us, and we're going to hit this a lot today. Are you doing that? Are you imitating 
someone's faith on purpose, you are imitating somebody's faith. Are you doing it on purpose? <laughs> are you choosing the people whose faith you're going to imitate? Are you trying to become a person? Maybe I'm, I, I would love to talk to my older students about this right now, my refuge kids about this right now. You know, there are 12-year-olds that are watching you. If you're 18, there's kids that are watching you right now, and they're looking at you, and they're like, what does it look like to be a 17 and 18-year-old and say you love Jesus and walk through a dark world? And some of what they'll do will be what they see in you. Then I've got 17 and 18-year-olds who are looking at my 21 to 24-year-olds, and they're like, what does it look like to date and to go to college and to hold on to your faith? I don't know what that looks like. What are they doing? Oh, I'll do what they do. You're being watched, young person. Even at a young age, people are watching your faith. Who are you imitating? Who's pouring into you? And are you becoming a person whose faith is worth imitating? Let's think about it that way. And then moms and dads and grandparents, same thing holds true for us, right? People are watching. They're looking. 40-year-olds are looking at 60-year-olds. We're looking up and we're going, How do, what does this look like? How do you do that? Whose faith are you imitating? Are you leaving behind a faith that needs to be imitated? So how did the Thessalonians imitate them? Uh, when in Acts chapter 17, Paul, Timothy, Silvanus, they come to Thessalonica. They, they give the gospel for the first time. Nobody had ever heard about Jesus. They give the gospel to them, and it goes great, and then a mob attacks them. Uh, a mob comes after them to kill them, and they kind of escape with their lives. Um, there is a, 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 a Christian in uh, the city named Jason, and they take him, and they put him in prison, and they start accusing him of all these crazy things. And, and so immediately, that early church gets tested there in Thessalonica. Paul ends up having to kind of run for his life to get out of town um, without leaving behind a, a lot of the structure he might have left in uh, behind him anyway. So he's, for about three years, he's been wondering, I wonder how it's going back there. You know, I wonder how that, that little church is doing um, without having a chance to plan it the way that I would want to. And they've done spectacularly well. Unlike the church in Corinth, which is just a train wreck, Right? If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, it's crazy. So unlike that little church, the church in Thessalonica is doing great. They're imitating the faith that they saw in Paul and Timothy and Silvanus, who persevered under struggles and pain and suffering. So whose faith are you seeking to imitate? Are you seeking to imitate the person's faith who says, you need another jet? Wear long black skirts, and that's how you honor the Lord. Be poor, and that's how you're more like God. All of those people are under the false assumption that that kind of imitation guarantees them some kind of richer spiritual blessing or closeness to God. Different ends of the spectrum, they're all looking for the same thing, trying to do it in different ways. And some of us have been sucked into imitating faith like that, thinking there's some kind of guaranteed payoff on the back end. If I'm a little more pious, or I'm actually a little more worldly, I'll get God to give me stuff. And we've been told to imitate that kind of faith, have we not? Paul's point is this, that this little church that's surviving in a hostile environment, a culture that does not want them there, this little church has been so changed and so blessed and so inspired by Jesus' sufferings, because he says that, and Paul, that they have joyfully, he says that too, by the way, that with joy you have endured this. You have received this and suffered because of the gospel. They're joyfully enduring rejection of their daily walk with Jesus Christ. This is not a joy that you have to dig up, that you have to fabricate. 
Like, life is hard, but I'm going to put a smile on and cry at the same time, you know? It's not that kind of a thing. It's not a joy you have to dig up from somewhere. Man, I'm a believer that when you're saved, God puts this little fountain of joy in you, man. Like, he cracks through the bedrock, and there's this underground river of life and joy that's there. And over time, we need to dig and push and pull and shred and dig into that hole so that that joy just comes out. And that life comes out of us when suffering and pain come our way. So it's not something I dig up. It's something that God puts down deep in me. And at the right time, I think the Holy Spirit causes it to bubble up to the top. He causes that joy to come up when I need it. I think I have to be seeking it, but I do think the Holy Spirit just pushes it up to the top of us. So whose faith are you imitating? Is it a faith that tells you to smile and fake it and do good and follow Jesus because he's got a divine lottery for you? Plant a seed of a hundred and you'll get a thousand. Speak a blessing and get a hundred blessings back. Because that's the faith we've been told to follow, is it not? Especially in America. Or, or, are you imitating a faith that still walks with Jesus when they lose a child? Are you following and imitating a faith that clings to hope and joy when taking the last breath that they'll take on this earth? Are you imitating a faith that gets up and goes again when disease ravages your body? Are you imitating a faith that forgives and lives in the fullness of life after a lifetime of abuse? Are you imitating a faith that truly seeks to love and heal a broken marriage? Because I want to tell you guys, you're sitting beside some of those people now. There are people in this room who have a faith that puts my faith to shame. Right? This front row, which I can't look at right now because I'll cry. Their little boy has a faith that puts my faith to shame. He's been around Andrew for any amount of time. I feel like I'm not a Christian sometimes around that kid. I'd rather imitate that faith than a faith that says, give me a hundred and I'll give you a thousand. Amen? That's a faith that matters and will see you through to the other side. Whose faith are you imitating? They were imitating Jesus' faith, Paul's faith, and it saw them through suffering and difficulty. So because of Jesus, they were able to do these works of faith with joy in the middle of suffering. Here's the deal with suffering. All suffering, man, it's almost like it has its goal to steal our joy, to take away our joy. And you gotta, I think you have to really fight for that. All suffering can have the effect of making us miserable in our hearts, and just a walking, talking misery to other people. All suffering, all loss can drive us away from God and away from people. But because of Jesus' power in the hearts of these Christians, suffering can be another and more powerful tool that allows us to display the change that's happening in our lives. So we're going to mourn with those who mourn. We're going to weep with those who weep. But we are also going to look to God's goodness in our suffering and in our pain and our loss. And we're going to see how he's changing us. And we're going to receive new mercies and more love from God. We're going to have our minds and our hearts opened up to what God's got for us in the middle of suffering. And with a joy unspeakable and a joy unexplainable, we are going to model a mature faith and a love to everybody around us. So when you look at suffering, when suffering comes to your door in your house, in your heart, in your body, we can see it with joy as an opportunity to face pain, to overcome, and to pass on a faith that cannot be crushed because of tragedy. Did you catch that? 
I want to give away a faith that can't be crushed because tragedy has come into my life that stands under the weight of suffering and pain. That's a faith that's worth imitating. One of my favorite quotes, sports guy, one of my favorite quotes, Michael Jordan, I have missed over 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I was tested or trusted with the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Coming from a pagan basketball player, that sounds really good. Good theology, right? It is because, listen, you're not failing because you suffer. That's bad theology, all right? Suffering comes our way. Pain comes our way. Loss comes our way. That doesn't mean you're a loser in your faith. What's that going to do to your faith, and how is your faith going to handle that pain and suffering? That's the only question we have to ask. Will you leave behind a faith that can stand under the weight of this life that's worth passing on to somebody else, that causes you, because you walk through that pain and suffering, it causes you to overcome later and in other things? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. A really, a faith that really is worth imitating. That's what we want to pass on. That's what these young Christians had from Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus. Look in verse 9. We'll wrap up this chapter. He says, For they themselves, these other people, other Christians, and lost people, they report about uh, us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who receives us, uh, rescues us, sorry, from the wrath to come. The real gospel does this to us. The real gospel of Jesus Christ gets deep down inside of us, and it changes how we live every day to ensure us, to ensure our souls that we can have joy in the middle of suffering. How does that happen? He points out two things. He says, you have turned and you're waiting. You've turned and you're waiting. Turning from idols. He says, you have turned from idols. One of my favorite passages, I think it's uh, Isaiah 56, maybe 60, and he's talking about idolatry. And it's like a chapter and a half of it. And he says, here's what you're doing when you make an idol. You take a dead tree, or you cut down a tree that you've now killed. You're, kidding, you're taking a dead tree, and you take some part of it, and you carve a figure out of it, and you sacrifice to it, and, and you burn incense to it, and then the rest of it, you throw in a fire and you burn to keep warm and cook your food over. He said that, that wood, that idol, is completely incapable of giving you anything. Now, you're all, we're all like, well, you know, it's 21st century, Pastor. We don't worship idols anymore. We have advanced past that stage of human existence. Your cash in your bank account, your stock your retirement plan, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your children or your grandkids, your job, they are temporary, passing creatures that are incapable of filling you up. Somebody needs to write that down because I see in the church consistently a worship of things and people. And we baptize it and we call it something that's Christian and it's really not. We're just making an idol of things that are good. Taking good things and making them ultimate things, right? the same thing. They're just as incapable as that dead tree of giving you anything that you need to fill you up. 
says, turn from idols. Turn to the living God. He has life. I love that idea that God is the living God. He has life. He has more life than you can imagine. And he gives it to people that he loves to his children. And he provides for them. And he gives us a guarantee. He sustains life for your soul. He is the life you've been looking for. You think it's in your kids or your grandkids or your bank account or your job or security or happiness or something else. The life that you're looking for, it's in Christ. It is God. He is it. He has it. Turn to the living God for the life that you want. Then he says, turn from idols, turn to the living God, turn to the true God. That idea of truth and falsity. False gods has this idea of being a trickster or a liar, like idols are lying to us, which they are. They're tricking us. Satan is using them to trick us. Turn to God. He is the only object of worship that will never lie to you. You ever thought about that, man? God cannot lie. If he says to you, I have life and I have it more abundantly, can that be a lie? Can that be a half-truth? Can that be an exaggeration? Or has to, it has to be ultimate truth, doesn't it? True truth. Really true truth. He is the only object of worship that will never lie to you because he is the true God. He is truth. He has truth in you. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. He won't lie to you. He will keep his promises to you. He is true and trustworthy, and you can trust him with your dreams and your soul. You can give him the deepest parts of you, and he will not let you down. Is there anybody that will give me one amen? amen? I am not saying you won't die or be poor or suffer or be in pain. I'm telling you God will never fail you in what he's promised to do for you, ever. They turn from idols to the living God, to the true God, and it says, and they're waiting. How many of you guys have ever had to wait at the DMV? <laughs> Awful, right? That little get on, have you done that get in line thingy on your phone where you do it and then you can just 10 minutes beforehand, they call you and you can get there? It's awesome. Waiting at the DMV is terrible. Waiting in a grocery checkout line. Now, I heard a definition of hell. A definition of hell is waiting in a grocery checkout line in the 20-item line, and somebody has 30 items, and they're paying with a check with coupons, and they don't, they don't speak English. <laughs> like, waiting behind that, awful, right? Waiting in the DMV, waiting at the grocery store. That's why we came up with self-service things, because they're tricking you. You're staying there the same amount of time, but you're just doing it yourself, and they're not paying somebody. You know what I mean? None of us like waiting for that. There's no fun in that. It's full of stress. It's wasted time. It's full of frustrations. Let me ask another question. How many of you have ever waited to get into like an amusement park, Six Flags or Disney World or Disneyland or a water park or something like that? Get there early. You stand in line. You're the first ones there when the doors open up. Anybody go to Franklin Barbecue in Austin? It's like a five-hour, six-hour wait sometimes for barbecue. I remember waiting in line when Phantom Menace came out, Star Wars, in the parking lot at AMC in Sugarland. I was there at 10, doors open at midnight. I'm a nerd, right? <laughs> you wait in a delivery room for a baby. That waiting is full of excitement and joy and celebration. You can't wait to get in there and, and get into whatever it is you're going to get into because the payoff there is incredible. These people are enduring hardship because they understand that what they're waiting for is worth it. 
they're waiting for a, a world that is their home, and this isn't their home, and they're waiting to see their Savior face to face, and they're waiting to see people that they love have trusted in Christ. They're waiting to be healed from all the junk that this world throws on us. They know that the payoff is worth the wait. They will work, and they will love, and they will endure with hope and struggling and suffering because what they're waiting for is worth it. They know that when Jesus comes, the wrath that has been theirs will be taken from them. And in their minds, Peter says it, he says the exact same thing. Any hardships here pale in comparison to the glory and the blessing and the fulfillment that is coming our way when Jesus comes back. Everything that we walk through that's hard in this life pales in comparison. So will we wait faithfully and patiently and work in the waiting? That's the only question we have to ask. So they are turning and waiting. Again, I want to just hit this as they turn they turn from idols, want to help you evaluate like what, some, what might be some of my idols or some things. If idols freaks you out, maybe they're things that are competing for your love and affection and attention. What might some of those things be? All right. What have I spent my time and attention with on the last week? Do you have a calendar of any kind? Do you have a calendar in your phone? Uh, do you have a calendar? If you went back and looked at it, what has eaten up and consumed the majority of your time? That could be an idol for you. Not necessarily, but it could be, especially your free time once you get out of work or school. But even then, work could still be one. Where have I spent my money? Maybe you don't have a checkbook registry anymore. You're not over 25. You don't even know what that is. So you can go to your bank account and look and see, where did I spend my money this last week? How am, how am I using the physical financial resources God's given me? That might show us what some of our idols are. What makes me angry and fearful when I think it might be taken away from me. I think that's probably the biggest exposure of idols. What impacts the way that I behave? What's, what are the things that cause me to do what I do? It influences me to behave the way that I behave. Could be an idol. What are my highest values? Where do they come from? Your idols generally direct those things. What you worship directs those things. And then what motivates me? What do I love? What am I pursuing in life? What have I given my heart and my dreams and my life and my resources to to get? I love it and I must have it. Whatever it is that is in our affections might also reveal to us what we need to turn away from. I'm going to skip to the bottom here. Um, as we think about living in this world that is broken, and suffering for our faith and suffering in this world and having a faith that's worth imitating, I want to maybe bring something up that we've probably, most of us have probably seen this week. God is changing everything about us and he's giving us a faith that can stand with joy and do work in a broken world, that can handle the suffering and the pains of life and still be a Christian faith. He's giving us this faith that can be imitated by other people. Other people are watching how we go through suffering. Other people are looking at how we handle our pain and what that does with our faith and how our faith gets applied to that. And it may be the best witness that we have to a watching world. I personally think the best thing we show people as Christians is how we handle pain and suffering. Not with a plastic facade. We're not going to fake our way through it. We're going to mourn and weep and cry, but we're not going to do it as those who have no hope how we handle what pain does to us 
what suffering does to us and how we handle that reveals a lot about the gospel to a watching world. So like I said, this last week, um, over the weekend, there was something that was just blowing up most of our um, social media feeds. October 6, 2018, an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger entered Botham Jean's apartment in Dallas and shot him and killed him. On October 2nd, 2019, Amber Geiger was uh, committed of, or convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Generally speaking, at a uh, uh, murder trial in the state of Texas, the victim's family has an opportunity to address um, the killer. We were at lunch yesterday with somebody, and this 84-year-old woman had her son who had been shot by somebody else, and she said, I don't really know what I feel right now, but I know that I want you to rot in hell. A video was released of, of Brant, the brother, speaking, giving the victim's family response to his brother's killer. And I want, I want you to see it. I want you to hear it. So, Wes, if you could hit that for us. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. think anyone could say it again I'm speaking for myself not even bad for my family but I love you just like anyone else and I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did but I see I I personally want the best for you and I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do, and the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yeah. Man, what kind of faith is that? Immediately after that, they didn't show you. I watched some of the local coverage. And immediately after that, the judge, an African-American woman, came off the dais with a Bible in her hand, handed it to the officer, prayed with her, and told her the same thing, to give her life to Christ. And the reporter who was so... <laughs> they go back to the newsroom, and the, the guy at the news, he doesn't even know what to say. And he goes... 
if that wasn't amazing enough, we're going to send you back for something else. And the court reporter who was there, also an African-American man, probably in his upper 50s, he said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. He said, I've been doing this for 25 years, never seen anything like it. The judge came off and prayed with her and handed her a Bible. How you handle suffering and pain probably one of the largest, most powerful testimonies to a watching world that you could ever give away. Whose faith are you imitating? Guys, listen, because there's a bunch of cruddy, pseudo, false, plastic Christianity out there that is not worth looking like. There are people in this room, and there are probably people you know who have been through the fire and the trial and they have come out on the other end and they have survived and they are thriving in joy, that's a faith you want to get close to. Amen? And isn't that a faith you want to give away to somebody? Father God, I pray for us as a church that we would be like this young Thessalonian church, God, 2,000 years ago. Father, that intentionally and on purpose, looks for people to imitate. Whose faith can I imitate? Who's been through that fire? And I can walk with them, and they can walk with me, and they can show me what it looks like to persevere and to walk through those hard things. God, I pray that we would be a church full of people who are looking for people to imitate, a faith that's worth imitating, and we would be a church that's building a faith on Christ that stands in trials and suffering and pain that we can give to other people, God. So I pray for each of us that maybe right now, each of us as Christians, we pray some prayer like, God, I want to let me build a faith. Help me build a faith. Give me a strength to build a faith that other people would want to imitate. Father, use us any way you want to to build a church, uh, a group of people that can stand and that our faith is not shaken and we can love and hope and have faith and work hard while we wait on you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, y'all. We're gonna have our guys come, our ushers come and take up our offering. Uh, if you're a